Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheck. We talk of war and rumor of war. We thank our soldiers for their service, and we think that we are welcoming them back into society. But what are we actually welcoming them back into? They return often with an experience we cannot fully comprehend, an experience that often bonds them together into their own tribe, one that makes them different from us. In fact, as many of us work hard to break down the tribal bonds that divide us as a society, as globalization continues to homogenize us both domestically and internationally, the experience of war often forms new, personal, and deeper such bonds among the soldiers that make it so much harder for them to be among us. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Sebastian Younger. He's the best-selling author of The Perfect Storm, A Death in Belmont, and Fire. He's a contributing editor to Vanity Fair. He's been awarded numerous prizes for his journalism. And it is my pleasure to welcome him here today to talk about his new book, Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging. Sebastian Younger, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Talk first about this general proposition that you talk about in Tribe in terms of what the impact of war is on soldiers and the way it creates this tribal bond among them. Well, the, the, you know, the whole idea for me started when I was young. I had a mentor named uh, Ellis who was half Lakota Sioux, half Apache. And he said to me, he said, you know, on the frontier, white people were always running off to join the Indians. The Indians never ran off to join civilization. No one ever, people go native, they don't go civilized. I thought about that my whole life. And then when I was with soldiers in Afghanistan, after a very rough deployment, they came back to Vicenza, Italy, where they're based, and they had a good time for a few weeks, a couple months. Then what happened, a lot of them told me that actually if they had the choice, they'd go back to war. And what I realized they were going back for wasn't necessarily, you know, the combat, although, frankly, if you're trained for combat, it's something that, can kind of grow on you, but what they're really going back for was the incredible intimacy and connection of life in a platoon at a rugged outpost. We evolved as a species to live in groups of 40, 50 people, totally interreliant on each other, sleeping together, eating together, doing tasks together. That's what we evolved for. So when these guys come home, I mean, 10% of the military is actually experiences combat. The other 90% really is not getting traumatized. But what they are having to go through is this transition from this very intimate platoon life that recreates our evolutionary past pretty closely to to America. They get dropped down in the great American suburb, and suddenly they're, they're sleeping alone in an air-conditioned room or living with their family at the end of a cul-de-sac in a suburb, whatever it is. We didn't evolve for that, and it... And it, it's very psychologically very, very hard on all humans and, and, and veterans often in particular because they're sort of psychologically vulnerable uh, when they come home. How much more difficult is it? How different is it today where we have, if we're talking about domestically, where we have an all-volunteer army and it is a self-selecting population that arguably has a stronger predisposition to this kind of lifestyle than it was, for example, with soldiers that were returning after the Second World War? Well, there's been generational changes since Second World War. I mean, huge changes in society. I mean, a friend of mine's father fought in World War II and came home to his neighborhood in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and his six brothers, who also fought, all lived within blocks of him. That kind of experience is rarer and rarer, and this man experienced horrific things. I mean, he was went through the entire war from, you know, from North Africa right through to, to the end and years of combat. And, um, but he was, 
And he came back changed, all traumatized, but he also had people around him who understood. And as as our society modernizes and gets wealthier, um, people are more and more disconnected, not only from the military, but from everything that keeps it alive. I mean, from oil production, from logging, from farming, like all this stuff that keeps a modern industrial society going. Most of the population is, is unconnected from it. And, and um, that also is sort of deeply untribal. And it really leads to a feeling of disconnect both in the population and the people that are doing these important jobs, including, obviously, soldiers. One of the things that you touched upon a few moments ago and that you write about in Tribe is the aspect of evolutionary biology and the way that, that society has moved at a greater speed than evolutionary biology moves. Yeah, I mean, it takes around 25,000 years for significant changes um, to, to occur in our, in our evolution, in our biology. Um, I mean, and, you know, agriculture was invented around 10,000 years ago, so we haven't even physically changed in response to agriculture, uh, much less industry and the Internet. I mean, it's just not happening, right? So, so what we have to understand is that we have sort of hominid bodies and brains but we're living in high-rise apartments and driving cars and all this other stuff. And, it, it, you know, those, the, the changes in society are miraculous. I mean, they're absolutely amazing. There's nothing, no one, I think, would ever wish them away. Um, but it is interesting to look at the psychological consequences of these changes. We are we're a social species. We're meant to live in groups, in small groups. It's what makes us happy. You take modern society and you collapse it, for example, during the Blitz in London, and suddenly strangers are sleeping shoulder to shoulder on subway platforms, what you find is that not only does psychological health improve, so during the bombings in London, admissions to psychiatric wards went down. Fewer people checked, checked into, into psychiatric wards. Um, but later, people say that they missed the blitz. And what they missed is that incredible intimacy and interreliance and the feeling that you as an individual are necessary to your survival, that to, to your society, that your society needs you to help everyone survive. And that feeling of being necessary is, is, feels good to the point of almost being intoxicating to people. Talk a little bit about what you hear from soldiers themselves when they talk about this experience. Well, you know, the, uh, yeah, soldiers often are quite young, and, and all of us, when we were young, we didn't understand our own, necessarily understand our own reactions to things. It takes a while to figure out what's going on when a girl breaks up with you, or when you, you know, you, you, when you leave, you know, when you leave, or whatever. I mean, all these things are complicated, and so, but the soldiers that I know, the way they describe this experience is that they... They really like the fact that they're part of a group and that the group is counting on them and that in, in return, they can count on the group. And one guy said to me, you know, and it's, not, it's hardly a utopia out there, right? I mean, you've got 30 guys on a hilltop getting shot at. Right. There's going to be fights. There's going to be arguments and conflicts. I mean, of course. But one guy said to me, you know, there's guys in the platoon who straight up hate each other, but we'd all die for each other. That is human evolution in a nutshell that humans produce a, 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 a society built of those kinds of bonds. Uh, other animals really don't do it. Um, there is no altruistic self-sacrifice in the animal kingdom for, un, for unrelated peers. I mean, for your, for your offspring, maybe your mate, 
uh, but not for unrelated males. It's unheard of. And, um, and, but humans do it. And it's the fabric of human society. And when people are exposed to it, it's an incredibly profound experience. To what extent does it create a resentment among the soldiers towards the larger society and vice versa? Well, uh, you know, it depends on the soldier. I, you know, I think on the one hand, soldiers often point out that only 1% serve. But on the other hand, they're also incredibly proud of that fact in a way. It makes them part of a kind of an elite. And um, you often hear of the term, you know, 1% in reference to uh, income, right? The 1% in you know, the top 1% of earners in this country. Um, but there's this other 1% that served in the military. It's another, in some ways, it's a different kind of social elite. It's, it's, it's the very few people who have served the, the the greater good overseas. And um, so I think they're also quite proud of that. Um, w- one of the problems was changing that, that percentage, that statistic. I mean, okay, it's a safe 5% serve. Um, in some ways, that's good. It broadens the military experience in society. But on the other hand, the nation couldn't possibly pay for an army that's five times the size of what it is. It, it, it would be just financially impossible. So we are, you know, like it or not, we're stuck with the 1%. Um, I think what can change is the relationship between the 1% and the 99%. You know, I think people um, don't understand that the war, that, that if we're at war, it's, it's really, it's, it's the nation's war. It, it, the war doesn't belong to the soldiers. Um, it's, the, it's, it's all of our war. Even if you oppose the war, it's, your, it's still your war. You're a citizen of this country. And that sort of ownership of what our nation does, even things that you may not like, that kind of ownership, I think, goes a long way towards a, binding our nation together, which we're sorely in need of right now, and B, making soldiers feel like they're, they're actually um, uh, acknowledged by society for doing something um, for doing something essential. I'm not sure, although people say thank you for your service, I'm not sure they feel that um, recognized in that kind of essential way. How is it different, for example, in a country like Israel where you have universal military service? Yeah, it... it uh, it, it, it is universal. In, in reality, it's not quite universal, but a huge number of people in Israel serve in the military. Most are not in combat, obviously. The, the percentage of soldiers in the modern army that actually fire their weapons is very, very small. Uh, but they do all serve, which that means that everyone... Um, my father my father once said to me, my father grew up in Europe and in France and um, you know, watched as the U.S. military, along with Britain and Canada, basically saved the world from the Germans. And and we were talking, when I was a young man, we were talking about service to your country and the draft and all that stuff. And he said, you know, you don't owe your country nothing. You owe your country something. And, um, and I think national service would actually be a way in peacetime. So this isn't the draft. This is a peace, peacetime national service. would be a way to give young people the opportunity to, um, to do something for their nation, which is, uh, sadly, a, a, hard, a hard thing to come by. I mean, how do you serve your nation if you're not at war? There's sort of no way to do it. National service would provide that way. I think national service, mandatory national service, with a military option for those who wanted to actually join the military. You know, I think that would be a very, um, you know, somebody's a very profound thing for the country to do, just in terms of how we experience our citizenship. The other overlay to all of this is the whole issue of tribalism in and of itself and the way we are seeing both a, a, a reaction against it 
and more of it in response to the way that the broader society is changing, both domestically and internationally? Yeah, I mean, I think there are candidates today in the U.S. who are uh, leveraging a kind of tribalistic thinking among their base as a, a deliberate campaign strategy. Uh, I think it's probably smart politics. Um, I think it's probably very, very stupid national policy. I mean, as the leader of the entire country, you really don't want to foster a tribalism within your country. You're splitting the country. I mean, we already fought one civil war over that 150 years ago. We don't need to do it again. Um, tri tribalism, I mean, like anything, you know, like, like, a, like, like a pan gun or for that matter, like a splitting mall, can be used for good or for ill. I mean, it's, a, it's just, it's a human behavior and, 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 it, and it can be used for, to good ends or bad ends. What I would say to someone who was creating a kind of um, us versus them tribalism within their own political base, anyone who's doing that, and both sides do it, by the way, I, I'm, I'm not pointing my finger at you know who, uh -huh. uh, really, both sides <laughs> are guilty of this. What, what, you know, what, what you're doing um, is fracturing, is sort of fracturing the country for your political advantage, and that's, I, I'm sorry, but that's just not leadership. I, I, as Donald Trump said at one point, either you have a country or you don't. Um, I really like that he said it in reference to the immigra to immigration, but that's a different conversation. But those actual words I kind of like. And then, yes, Donald, you either have a country or you don't. And if you have a country, everyone in it, is equally part of the part of this country, right? Every citizen in it is part of this country, and you can't marginalize um, the bits and pieces of the demographic. You can't insult your president. You can't insult the government. Uh, you're you're either in it or you're not in it. And and we can disagree all day long. We can argue. We can do all that good stuff that makes up a democracy. But you don't talk with contempt about people inside the wire, as it were, because you may need them tomorrow when when you get attacked. And the idea that this country can't be turned into a combat outpost overnight by world events is, is ludicrous. Of course we could. Of course, what also is laying the groundwork for it is a whole lot of fear. Fear of change, fear of dislocation, fear of, of, of external threats. The, all of that fear leads to an opportunity for those that want to foster it for more tribalism. Right, and I, I, absolutely, and, and those fears are some of them are legitimate, and they all and all of them need to be discussed. Fear is fear, and if people experience it, it it's a very powerful motivator, um, and in sometimes destructive ways. But I would say, yeah, go for the tribalism, but your tribalism had better include the entire nation. And if you're arguing for a tribe, a sub tribe within the nation, you are wrong. You you are more of a threat to this country than than ISIS. Sebastian Younger, his book is Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging. I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. Thank you.